Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. All right. Good day, everyone. It's CJ, and we are live. Welcome to another edition of Rogue News, Rogue Mornings. Uh, very excited today, again, to have London Paul uh, joining us. London Paul of the Sirius Report. Uh, again, uh, London Paul, thank you for joining, and good morning to you. Yeah, good morning, CJ. Yeah, it's a pleasure. I think by the end of this week, people will be sick to death of me. <laughs> <laughs> That's absolutely not true. I've, I've read all the comments. And they're like, it's been an absolute treat having having Paul to, to, to join, to break things down. And, and I really appreciate you helping because it, it's very boring to try to do a podcast by yourself and you feel like you're talking to yourself the whole time. So <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, it's good because these are kind of topics where it, we can bounce ideas and discuss things. So, yeah. No, I'm just glad it, it was worked out well that V went away when he did. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and hopefully he's having a great vacation and, and ready to join. But we have a significant amount to talk about, Paul. Uh, so I, I want to jump right into it. Um, you know, again, thank our sponsors, uh, MyCB Edibles, Remain Calm, the Crypto School, Liquid Base. Uh, thank you guys all for your support. But let's let's jump right into the conversation. I, I happened to catch this morning an uh, interview that Ainsley Earnhardt did with uh, Trump today. And it, it was a 20-minute interview. They're breaking it down into five-minute intervals. And it's very interesting to hear what he said specifically in regards to Cone. Again, reiterating the fact that the funds that were paid to Stormy Daniels were, in fact, his own funds out of his own account, not any type of campaign fund, uh, or, nor did they go out there and solicit funds you know, for this. And he was very adamant about that. It was also his interesting to hear his take on, on why Cone kind of flipped London Paul. And that was because he specifically stated that uh, and and I forgot to even discuss this, but I think you did. But this taxi cab business that Cohen had, I guess, apparently, you know, just a lot of fraud, a lot of embezzlement, you know, millions of dollars in fine. You know, Cohen potentially was looking at, you know, close to 10 years in prison. And apparently they cut a deal with him, I think, taking it down, you know, significantly less than that. And obviously for probably in hopes of information that they could t directly tie Trump to this whole Russian collusion uh, crap, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, this is the whole point. They'll they'll use anybody they think they can leverage to. I mean, really, these people in in a grand sense are, are sort of irrelevant to them. What they're more concerned about is Trump's the big scalp, the big prize, and they're trying to do anything. And of course, it absolutely proves that you know, if on the basis of Trump, I mean. There was no funds paid from campaign funds, so or no, so therefore that's an irrelevance. And you know, as we said yesterday, it's highly unlikely there's any grounds to impeach Trump on this basis. And that, I, you know, we stand by that fact. So obviously, I haven't had a chance to see the interview. Um, so it'll be interesting, obviously, to see all the segments put together. But yeah, I'm I sure it'll be just, on YouTube. Yeah, I'm sure that they'll be released on YouTube. And and really, the only other thing that I want to add to that is that there is a, a narrative out there in in the alt media that somehow that 
in the background that that you know Trump is specifically working with Jeff Sessions and they have this great plan. You know, in, in my opinion, that does not exist. And Trump explicitly said that today regarding his frustrations with Jeff Sessions. Uh, he did not. Uh, he did not share with Trump prior to announcing that he was. What's that word again? Reclusing himself. Help me out here, Paul. Yeah, recusing himself. Recusing yeah, himself from the, from the from, yeah. Yeah, he didn't. He didn't consult with Trump regarding that. Uh, he has failed to release the unredacted uh, FISA report, which Trump now feels he's going to be forced to sign an executive order to do that. So, if there's any narrative out there that Sessions is a good guy, it's completely wrong, in my opinion. Uh, uh, and, and there's a lot of discussion that come after the midterms that, in fact, Sessions will be fired. And that's something that's very important. I, I specifically think Sessions is holding things up from moving forward versus all this three and 40 chess happening in the background. I, I, I don't I do not think that that's happening, Paul. No, I mean, uh, the issue is we, I mean, we've said it quite a few times that if it wasn't for Sessions, there wouldn't be any Mueller investigation. And, <laughs> So if you really want to help Trump, I mean, not that Trump has any reason to, to, to need help in that regard, but the fact isn't about whether, you know, Trump's guilt of, of Russian collusion. It's the fact it's being used to stymie him and prevent him doing the things that he wants to do as, as president. So, and if you know, Sessions hadn't recused himself, then we would know, we would have never talked about Mueller and an investigation. And that must be very irritating for trump not least in the fact that he never had the decency to tell trump prior to um to doing so so no sessions has done nothing to help trump in in any regard and yeah i think it's i wouldn't be surprised if you know there's a lot of developments you know let's assume trump uh you know wins the midterms and there's every reason to believe he will then yeah, I think people like Sessions might well be fired. I mean, I I would go as far as to say I I wouldn't be surprised if Trump's thought about firing Sessions on a number of occasions already. And, you know, the, there might be ramifications for doing that that at this particular point in time wouldn't be a good idea. But post-midterms, there's every reason to suggest that there'll be a lot of changes happening. And likely, you know... <laughs> If we talk about the wrecking ball scenario, then um, I think he'll ratchet up a few notches post the midterms, provided, of course, he wins them. If he doesn't, then obviously, as we said, that it poses a big question mark over his ability to be to be an effective president. And that's why, as much as everybody keeps focusing on, oh, all these ideas that you know things are going to happen this week, next week, and every other week. I think the most important thing for the American people to focus on is the midterms. I mean, Trump's pledging to spend six days a week campaigning. So he's taking it seriously. He's not sitting on the fence and being complacent that he's going to walk the midterm. He knows how important it is. And, and it's extremely important from the American people's perspective that Trump wins those midterms because if he doesn't, it, I think you just find the next two years of, of his of his presidency, he'd be wading through treacle, trying to get anything done. Nothing would happen. And the likelihood is they they you know they'd have more leverage to try and attempt to impeach him. And even then, I very much doubt it would happen. But you never say never. So don't be complacent. And I'm not saying anyone listening is quite the contrary. But I think there's too much focus on. Oh well, this is going to happen, and that'll end all the deep state cabal. 
I would be extre- put it this way, I'd be extremely surprised if anything happens before the midterms in that regard. You can never say never, and we can't we have no control over a myriad of events that could happen globally that would would make a huge difference and change the whole complexion of the financial system or the geopolitical world, but all things being equal. I don't see Trump spending any particular time in the next, what, two months or so, actually focusing on those things. He's focusing on the fact that he has to win the midterms. And and then, post those midterms, he can start to enact some more policies. And maybe, you know, some of those executive orders signed a long time ago will start to be enacted and and they'll start to make some sensible headway and where we will start to see tangible progress being made and not the idea well you know we we at the moment we're just even when we see in people being indicted even when we see exposures of things these are really kind of low-hanging fruit that don't really address the real problems and we're not seeing any of that but that's not a reason to be discouraged the only reason people are being discouraged is because they have this idea or have been told for months on end, oh, it's happening soon, it's happening soon. And when it doesn't, people get discouraged and think, oh, it's never going to happen. Because, But it was never going to happen. We said way back all this year, it's not going to happen now. It won't happen at this time now without bigging ourselves up too much. But I think sometimes it's good to say this. If people had listened to us telling telling them it's not going to happen don't at this point in time, they'd have saved themselves a lot of headaches ex- with the expectation it was. So, yeah, so it'd be interesting. I, I think it will be probably worth everybody catching up with the Fox interview, and I intend doing so myself just to, out of interest to hear what Trump has to say. But I think it was a wise move to come out and do that and to address things from his perspective and calm some nerves because, no doubt, there were people concerned about Trump being impeached etc etc which as we said it was highly unlikely i mean there's no grounds to do it um and so in that sense that's a that's a responsible attitude to to take from from a presidential perspective yeah absolutely absolutely and and there's so many there's a lot of discussion paul in regards to the number of the numbers of ceos that are resigning and the number of people that are not coming back to congress and senate and i keep thinking to the uh, financial tsunami that is that is occurring around the globe and and you know if, if I could in, you know envision myself and more people are awakening to understand you know where the crime where the fraud how this has happened and it's because of the merger of the corporations and the government they're deciding the last thing that I would want whenever that day of reckoning hits is to be sitting in those positions of of CEO when people understand that you're flated you're been inflating your stock by stock buybacks. The the corruption that's occurred has occurred because primarily because of the, the federal government, the U.S. state. So I think in part that's why we're seeing so many people that are fleeing, you know, out of those type positions because more and more people are awake and they're starting to finally understand that this fake left right paradigm that truly doesn't exist. You know, they keep you know continuously put us at odds against each other. That people are starting to wake up to the realization and they're starting to look at Washington, D.C. They're starting to look at these corporations to understand. And now we're getting news, Paul, that's coming out in regards to uh, what's happening right now in some of the the subprime credit uh, market, uh, what's occurring. Um, You know, they're, they're starting to tighten that because they understand they're a little bit worried about the amount of credit that's out there and the potential for defaults. 
Yeah, I mean, we've spoken on and off with regards to the whole sort of debt balance and, it, you know, the whole mortgage issue, auto loans, credit cards, student loans, etc. And there's no doubt it's growing on a month-by-month -month basis. But, yes, they're now starting to get spooked about this so-called subprime exposure. I mean, everyone remembers the subprime crisis in terms of mortgage in 2008. Well, subprime is, is certainly prevalent again in the mortgage markets, but it's also prevalent in general credit. And there was a report that's come out from this TransUnion industry report, which came out to do the second quarter of 2018. And it says, obviously, that credit card users have slashed the average credit line avail availability to subprime borrowers by 10% from a year earlier. And that's quite a significant recognition that there is a problem. Um, and obviously subprime uh, borrowers are going to, are obviously far more likely to default than the non-subprime. And that's a statement of the obvious. And they said, obviously this contributed to a 3% decrease in the average borrowing cap on new credit card accounts. However, it says as much as they've trimmed total credit availability, banks are trying to make up for declining balances with more what they term clients and subprime origination. So it's, it's almost like, well, this subprime person's like massively in debt. Okay, we're going to have to curb their spending. Let's just go and find some more subprime people who maybe don't have any debt, but let's, you know, <laughs> let's look to... So, it's just a ridiculous kind of scenario where it's it's just let's issue some more debt where someone's less liable to, to default. But, I mean, there's some interesting statistics where you show in the space of three years, the number of credit cards rose from, what, 370 million to 420. So we're talking, what, 50, well, my roughly 15%, not quite, but. And and interestingly, and, and we have to be a little bit careful with statistics because all this borrower level delinquency rate um, has obviously gone from 1.2% to 1.5. That's a significant increase, but I suspect it's much higher than that. And then obviously average borrowing debt per person or the average debt per borrower has gone up sort of around, what, 8 or 9%. And then, of course, these prior quarter originations of subprime of, of sort of they've, they've kind of leveled off a bit, um, but they're still obviously increased in the last three years. And then this average new account credit lines increased, obviously, as well. No, sorry, slightly decreased from Q2 of 2017. But there certainly is a recognition that there is a major problem in the subprime market. And and that includes not just mortgages. But that includes, obviously, for example, like auto debt. It also includes credit card debt. And there's undoubtedly people with enormous student loans who in the last 10 years who are now in jobs where we all know that the job market, for much as this idea of full employment we know is a nonsense, but how many people are earning ridiculously low wages and have a student debt to, mar to, to manage and also in the process, maybe they're borrowing in it also factors into what we said about all these Q2 figures of 4.1% GDP growth and everyone's high-fiving each other. You know, the U.S. economy's turned around until you actually ascertain that most of that is driven by, consu by consumer debt. So they're basically borrowing to, to, pay for, <laughs> to pay for this GDP increase, which, of course, is farcical. I mean, it's like debt's become the new, the new credit. So 
yeah, it is a recognition, but I think it's one of those situations. It's too little, too late. And I mean, at the end of the day, part of the problem is what QE and zero interest rate policy does. It fuels relatively cheap credit. But when interest rates start to rise, as we've seen, then obviously people start to suffer in terms of paying back debt. I mean, never mind the fact that you know credit card debt's significantly higher than the underlying interest rate. Never mind that mortgages obviously are less, but still are above the, the nominal interest rate for, for any nation. So the question is, you know, what what's the underlying reason why they're suddenly fearful? Well, of course, it's the interest rate rises that the Fed's uh, implemented. And of course, they keep talking about raising interest rates even more. So what's that going to do? It's cause, going to cause a further contraction in people's borrowing capability will also mean that people who are subprime and not even subprime are more likely to default on debt. And it's just another example of economic reality versus economic illusion, which and why we keep making these points. And when you factor in the reality of inflation, which is probably 10% and maybe even higher, it's, it's just an app. And that's the real another reality why they're raising interest rates because they're actually trying to curb inflation. But you can't curb inflation in an economy that's debt-driven and everyone and is dependent on debt for the last decade to keep the economy going, because at some point something's going to give, and as we know, uh, what's going to give ultimately is that you will have economic implosion because you can't manage and control this debt. You can't keep raising interest rates. I mean, there's an argument they're raising interest rates, so they've got... Latitude later to lower interest rates when economic, you know, downturn happens, as people think, or an implosion, as I regard it. So, but none of it's manageable. And I think ultimately, the fact when you have basically credit um, institutions starting to get worried about subprime, you c- the problem is infinitely worse than they're letting on because they're never re- they're always very slow to react they're never proactive uh, they're normally very unreactive so from my perspective the fact they're doing this now suggests subprime is a major problem and ironically how long ago did we say subprime was an issue other than in mortgages i think at least a year ago so right. it's incredible how we can be well ahead of what's happening but they can't but then there are obviously reasons for that yeah, absolutely. Which revolves principally around the fact that the only way to keep the gravy train going is is through debt. But there comes a point when you have debt saturation, and we're effectively really now at debt saturation point uh, after 10 years. So where do they go next? There's nowhere else to go. Well said, Paul. And let's let's talk a little bit about this. And this is pretty startling statistics in regards to the reality, you know, we keep getting this uh, perception being built to us, this narrative regarding the economy, but you can't ignore facts. You can't ignore hard numbers. And there is a report that came out that basically states, Paul, that 52.1% of kids that live in households getting means, in other, in other words, some form of government dependency, is at 52.1% U.S. So this was from according to a 2016 survey of the Census Bureau where approximately 73 a million uh, people under the age of 18 in the United States, 38,365 of them 
or I'm sorry, 38 million or 52.1% reside in household in which one or more persons receive benefits from a means or a tested government program. Uh, this included supplemental nutrition assistance, food stamps, Medicaid, public housing, uh, just a growing mass of, of government dependency, Paul. Yeah, which again proves the point. How exactly is this indicative of a strong economy? I mean, to say, you know, just rounding the figures up, there's about 73.5 million people under 18 in the US and nearly 38.5 million of them. So as you say, around 50, over 50, just over 52% reside in households which are one or more persons receive benefits, as you say, from means-tested government programs. And this is indicative of, of a third world economy. And the other question, of course, is it's, far, it's one thing, you know, to provide food stamps and Medicaid and public housing and all the things that the art, you know, this report lists, but who's paying for this and how? And, and that is putting an intolerable strain on, on the U.S. economy in the process, and that's not a criticism of the people in receipt of them. It's just a statement of fact that when you have that many residents in households of which they're receiving these benefits, now, that is indicative of very high unemployment, but also indicative. I'm not sure exactly how the U.S. works, but in the U.K., if people are on very low incomes, you know, in families, they're eligible for more to apply for certain benefits to assist them to some extent, not a not entirely. So, you know, maybe that's the, the reality of what's happening in the US in terms of the fact that there is a significant proportion of people who earn very, are on very low incomes and therefore entitled to receive these means-tested government programs. I mean, I think that's pretty indicative probably of things like food stamp, Medicaid, etc. But, you know, maybe someone can provide me with all the details because I honestly don't know exactly how the breakdown uh, happens. But I think it's saying as well, some other interesting statistics were, you know, it says that, you know, Americans in all the age brackets up to the age of 44, when they're analyzed by the Census Bureau, were more likely to be living in a household that receives means-tested government assistance than the overall national rate of 35.9. So what it kind of implies, and it breaks it down even further, which I think is quite telling because it says 18 to 24-year-olds the rate's about 40%, 25 to 34, it's 36, well, nearly 37%, 35 to 44, 37%. And tellingly, in the next age group, it drops down to 30.1%, well, 31%, sorry. So I imagine what this is a classic case of is the certain sort of baby boomer generations who are still, you know, managing okay. But there's a whole swathe of people probably under the age of 40, who are, in, who are going to have serious financial problems because of the last 10 years or more of, of economic policy failure, effectively. And it's never going to get any better. It's only going to get any, uh, infinitely worse. And therefore, the prognosis for, for people in the US is not, is not great because the worse the jobs that they can you know, earn sufficient money, whether they're not in means-tested homes, Worse, the employment prospects to get the real 23% of people back into work. Okay, full unemployment is never going to be 0% because there's always people who can't work or don't need to work or for whatever reason. I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons why that's the case. But also, how do you deal with this? And it's increasingly obvious that the last 10 years policy is, is crippling 
the the so-called millennial um, generation. And that was an inevitability. I mean, they're crippled and saddled with enormous debt because of being encouraged. I mean, the UK is one great example of that, where everyone's told to go to university now and comes out with enormous student debt. I mean... I mean, they cap student fees per year just to go to, to a university at £9,000. So multiply that by a three-year degree course and then all the living costs. The average student's going to come out with 50, 60, 70, I don't know, 80,000 debt before they've even started. And in working in the world of work, where, where are the employment prospects where they can earn decent salaries to even attempt to pay that back? So... This is, this is all indicative of what happens when you have an economy that's run purely on debt. And inevitability is you're going to see these people where households will need means-tested government assistance. And the question is, I'd like to see some statistics as to how those figures have increased in the last 10 years. And ultimately, who is paying for this? I mean, it's always it's all well and good saying, well, we need means-tested government assistance. And I agree, you, you, there are reasons to do this, and I'm not saying it shouldn't happen, but someone's got to pay for it, and that is ultimately a problem as well. Yeah, yep, no, completely agree. And I, I, again, I think it's a sign. I think in, we'll, we'll see reports, Paul, probably coming out pretty soon, and they probably already are, that I'm not sure if there's a minimum age requirement to file bankruptcy but I guarantee you probably in less than a couple of years, we'll start to see reporting that uh, those between eight, ages of 18 to 25 will be leading the way in terms of filing bankruptcy at that young of age. And I think that's so driven exactly. You made a very valid point is that the, the, the wage, the, the wage increase, the wage growth has been so stagnant the past several years, but unfortunately, Paul, inflation as well as, a, a hyperbolic increase in, in tuition uh, for these students, uh, it's hard for me to place blame on them because we're so conditioned as a society that when you, you finish high school, you go directly to college. And, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, don't, don't get me wrong, but what I am saying is that, you know, the amount of debt that these young people are taking on to get that education is not in and the the amount they're having to pay is not being supported properly by the job markets and these jobs are not paying the salaries to to catch up with you know to help them out in terms of paying off those student loans it's it, it's ridiculous it's a it's a it's a vicious cycle i tell you what i have kids and 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 when they graduate i'm gonna either either potentially whatever they want to do it's their choice right but you know but you know, trade school or, hey, you know what, maybe stay out of school for a year, maybe go work, maybe go directly for a company and let them pick up some of the tab for college education, right? There's a lot of companies out there that have, you know, tuition reimbursement up to 50%, you know, things like that, you know, versus a conditioned society where we just send them off, we we sign their loan papers and, and you know, good luck, son, good luck, daughter. And, and you know, hopefully those jobs will be there in four years when you graduate. No, absolutely. I completely agree. I mean, you know, from my perspective, I was a, a student. I, you know, I was a student, and then, and I mean, it doesn't really matter what I did because it's of no relevance. But I was a student uh, for a long time, and then, and then stayed in academia for a short time in in a research capacity. And I mean, that was a long time ago, relatively, and we didn't have the debt problems we do now. But 
you know, proportionately, there was a lot less people at university. So there was a lot more jobs for people coming out. And the problem is, if you don't shift the job demographic, which which we don't. And in fact, we've we've made it even worse because 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago when people graduated, of course, there was jobs available and we had more of a manufacturing base in countries where the UK and the US has exported huge amounts of their manufacturing base. So it's a service-based economy. Well, a service-based economy that's growing, that's grown over the last decade and, and longer doesn't warrant having this exponential increase in students going to university because the problem is there is no jobs for them at the end of it that other than putting them in service sector jobs where they get paid very poorly. And that's that that's the problem. So people often have said to me in the past, you know, do you think my son and daughter should go to university? And I said, well, first off, it's not up to me to decide. The question is, do they want to? But if you're asking me, would I now do all the things I did academically in today, the answer probably would be no, because unless I was wanting to do something specific, like you know, become a doctor or a dentist or, God forbid, a, a lawyer or something, you know, something that you know in that sort of sphere where it's something actually quite specific, then you'd have to. And I would say, well, probably no, I wouldn't go because the expectation is I'm going to come to the end of it saddled with enormous debt, with no real realistic opportunity of of earning enough money. I mean, okay, in this country, you don't pay any student debt back until you earn, I think it's 25000 a year, but that's not the point. The point is, you're always in the back of your mind, you're saddled with that debt, it's, and, it, and it inhibits people from, want, from doing, you know, I mean, what do you do? Say, I'm going to go and buy a house. And then, by the way, I'm still saddled with all this debt. I mean, it's like having two mortgages, effectively, given the volume of debt, okay, proportionately less than a house, but, but still, it's a major problem. But the whole basis of sucking people into the education system. It's, I always refer to it as three years national service. It gets people out of the, um, the, the system. They're not, you know, they can't claim benefits. They're not able you know, to get any government assistance. And the question I would be asking is, why is it now the case that universities can charge these kind of extortionate tuition fees? When, okay, granted, there was a lot less people went were to university when I went but then you didn't pay any student fees your local council paid the student fees you also you know you had means tested student grants based on your parental income and you know people were horrified in my day having small you know overdrafts of 200 pounds now if people came out of the university with an overdraft of 200 pounds they'd be absolutely thrilled but that, that's the problem. That's what we've created. It's, like, it's all been sold to people. It's, oh, it's to give you greater opportunity. We're opening up the sphere of education. And they've been lied to and, and duped into going to university for the wrong reason. And, and then, of course, how despondent do people feel at the end when there isn't those job opportunities? But you know, these statistics prove uh, the reality, again, of, of what's happening economically and socially within nations such as the US and no doubt in the UK too. So it's a big problem. And at some point, you know, the chickens are going to come home to roost. And I think we're rapidly reaching that point where as much as they try to disguise economic reality, they're not able to do it anymore. Right. 
Yeah, and, and then also the, just considering the implications long-term, when you he hear reports of the younger generation so willing to accept uh, socialism, or or you hear people like Zuckerberg talking about providing a, a, a living wage and these experiments uh, that we read about, well, this is exactly it, is because we're creating a culture that believes that that uh, that government should be there to support people. It's and and so when we hear those reports, we when we hear that you know the, a significant amount of youth are are, are uh, they like socialism or they like the ideas of it. Well, this is why because we're we're basically creating a whole generation that that you know feels government dependency is perfectly fine, Paul. But yeah, but then it's sold that you know dependency on government's fine and. There's nothing to worry about. Oh, it, you know, because government's always looking after your best interest. It staggers me how anybody believes that. You know, I can remember, you know, in my teens going, hang on, why does anyone buy this? Because the government never does anything to improve anything. Things just get progressively worse. Why is anyone believing this? And the reality is they do. They just get sucked into this idea that, you know, that, that the government can provide them and the government's going to look after you. The government, frankly, well, until we have real governments in countries, they've never given a damn about people and they never will. In fact, you're just an annoying irritation to them that you happen to be there. But that, but you know, but the problem is that's the kind of re-education of people that will also come about as these paradigm changes that are underway continue. And eventually there'll be a recognition that, hang on, governments have never actually don't exist the way we thought they did and all these intended problems that we see now are going to have to be addressed and challenged and it comes back to this point that getting rid of the cabal is is of course a wonderful thing and we all look forward to the day they've disappeared in totality but there's a whole bunch of problems that are going to exist economically and socially i mean how do you change the mindset of of various generations for different reasons it's an enormous challenge ahead and we just never should lose sight of that yeah absolutely absolutely paul let's uh, shift gears we're getting news breaking uh, you know yesterday that the uh, saudis are calling off their aramco uh, ipo what are your thoughts well we said that you know a long time ago this there was an inevitability to this that the, the the problem, I mean, if you look in principle, MBS is doing this because he wants to finance these ambitious problem, uh, projects to diversify the Saudi economy. Absolutely. I mean, but the reality is Aramco's never opened its um, books for, for decades. So if you're going to value a business and, and have an IPO, it has to be realistic and, you know, and, and consummate to, to what its actual balance sheet says well if you're not prepared to open that people are not going to accept saudi's uh, valuation which was two trillion dollars i mean the question is you'd say okay well let's have a sensible valuation so it, there was an inevitability that, that you know that this deal was going to collapse and and saudi doesn't have the 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 support of the of the west anymore it won't have the support of western financial institution to support an ipo like this so and obviously, intelligently, the Chinese and the Russians will sit there and go, well, we don't need to get involved. Of course, you know, all the excuses made as to why they've, they've delayed this or actually, in this case, cancelled it, just don't stand up to scrutiny. 
because in fact it's the you would do it precisely now for the reasons they're saying you wouldn't do it. I think it's just indicative, though, of the fact that you know, we've said this many times, Saudi economically is in big trouble and it needs these kind of cash injections to, um, to, to, to stabilise the, their economy because there's no doubt they're, you know, they're running trade deficits. They, they, okay, the price of oil has gone up in recently to around $70 a barrel, but you know, it's never going to stay there. And when it goes back to $30, $40 a barrel, which it inevitably will do, you know, Saudi's problems are going to, only going to exacerbate. And, of course, like anybody who's intelligent enough who sits on the sidelines, Who's the biggest oil importer in the world? It's China. So China can just quite happily sit there and say, you know what, we don't have to take part in this because at some point you're going to be coming begging to us to to either take part in an IPO, take a stake in the company somehow, or, you know, and in return China will go, well, fine, you know, but the, here's the deal. You're going, to, you're going to officially announce that you join the Petro Yuan and you're no longer trading in the dollar, petrodollar. And, of course, we know what a seismic event that will be, and, and China intelligently does this. And this is another reason why often people will say, well, why don't China and Russia just get on with things? Like, why don't they just kill the dollar? And <laughs> You don't do that, because when you're seen to do that, you're the one who's seen to be the aggressor. In this case, in, in, indirectly, Saudi will get so desperate They'll they'll take some offer from the Chinese, and the Chinese will go. Well, we we get, you know we're bailing them out. We're resolving their financial problems, but in the process, it will have a cataclysmic change with respect to the petrodollar and the petro yuan. And that's why often people will get frustrated and go, well, you know, the petro yuan, it, it it hasn't taken off the way we were told it was going to be. But from day one, we said it's a slow burner, and it's gathering traction and gathering uh, interest. And of that, there's no doubt. But the bigger fish to fry come, are coming further down the track, and that's precisely why China always has a plan. They think very long term. They're not going to wait until the likes of the Saudis need help. They've they planned well in advance, put the, the platform in place, knowing full well, bit by bit, as nations de-dollarize, they're going to look to trade in the petro-yuan. And China has the wonderful um, advantage of being the world's biggest oil importer, and it's getting thirstier by the day for more and more oil so you know it's a win-win for them but ultimately you know it's a it's a reflection that you know aramco simply could never have an ipo because no one has any real true indication as to their you know the financial health of the business and when you're talking about the the sort of sums of money they are it's, no one's going to take that kind of risk right paul is is there any thoughts that the Saudis could be, you know, gaining more confidence in in the USA as far as maintaining, you know, uh, the likes era of the, the the Bush doctrine? You know, I I look at this also potentially that they're getting a lot more confidence of the U.S. actions towards Iran with really suppressing the amount of oil that's coming online. I look at signs that the U.S. Senate uh, blocked potential uh, legislation to keep funds from the United States from intervening with the war in Yemen that was blocked by the Senate. Could this also be construed that the Saudis are gaining more, the MBS is gaining more confident that the U.S. is going to be there to 
to to to make sure that the Saudis maintain any type of oil dominance in the Middle East? Well, the, the problem is if he believes that, then he's extremely foolish because all the U.S. efforts to to curb um, Iranian oil exports are doomed to fail. I mean, just quite simply, the whole trade um, embargo or, or trade war, sorry, with between China and the U.S. One very small example is that China's is stopped all its imports from um, from the U.S. And instead, it'll just import it from from Iran. So China's not gonna is not gonna stand there and see Iran oil industry uh, collapse. It will take up all the shortfall, and if necessary, it will drop other people in the process of doing it. The other thing is Russia will quite happily buy the oil under the goods for oil program and then sell the oil into the market themselves. So. No, if they believe that, well, fine, it's believe. there's one thing believing it, but the reality is very different. And you, you make the point, of course, uh, regarding um, this Senator Chris Murphy's amendment to withdraw all funding for the U.S. involvement in the war in Yemen. And the fact it was blocked by the Senate leadership on Wednesday, and that prevented it from getting a vote for inclusion in the 2019 Defense Appropriations Act. Now, the question I would have here is, and this is something I think that you know, it applies not just to the US, but the UK and everywhere else. I think there needs to be some serious understanding as to people in the Senate, what ties do they have to the so-called and in inverted commas military industrial complex? Do they, uh, do they what, what ties, what, do they have some financial reason why they want to see you know, this US involvement in the war in Yemen continue? Because quite frankly, we all know precisely what's been going on and the Saudi action. I mean, you talk about war crimes in war. You know, if this was Russia doing this, the world would be foaming at the mouth. But Saudi seems to launch these uh, indiscriminate attacks, which seems to kill innocent civilians on a regular basis. And the world just turns a blind eye and pretends that nothing's happening. The U.S. needs to walk away from Yemen. But this, this amendment or the blocking of this amendment proves that there are people inside the Senate who quite happily want this war with Yemen to continue. And there are, there are many reasons for that, not just maybe because of their own exposure to the military-industrial complex. It can also be that ultimately the, the U.S. thinks that Saudi's fighting a war with the Iranians in Yemen, which is not true at all. They're fighting a war with the Houthis. They like to just blame it and say it's all Iranian back. But this rapid obsession with Iran and Iran being responsible for for wars all around the world and and their financing and backing nations is is ridiculous. I mean, it's quite incredible how on the one breath they say, well, Iran's economy is crippled and and it's uh, but by the way they they're financing and funding all these uh, war efforts around the world and they're financing you know, organizations to potentially cause, uh, you know, terror incidents across the world. It just doesn't stack up. I mean, but I think this is a particularly damning indictment of that there's a mentality and it's part of this neocon mentality that says, you know, we, you know, we, we're on a war footing wherever we want to be on a war footing. And, and, you know, if we're going to back the Saudis, I mean, the first of all is, well, we're just refueling. Then we find out that mercenaries have been in, in Yemen fighting with the Saudis and also 
giving them tactical advice. And I certainly think that this, um, the amendment that they wanted to pass um, and to limit U.S. involvement in Yemen was absolutely uh, correct, and it should have been passed. But because the U.S. needs to walk away from Yemen because it is another Vietnam, but the neocon mentality is no, it's another war, and it's a, ultimately we're fighting a war with the Iranians, and we have to defeat them. So, and they're never going to win. It's like Afghanistan and the Taliban. You'd think after 17 years they'd go, hang on, what the hell are we doing here anymore? We're not going to win. We were never going to win. I mean, we proved with the Soviet Union who failed in the, the late 70s, early 80s. And yet we think we can do better and we're going to win the war. Well, it's the same with the Houthis. And they're never going to defeat them in, in Yemen. And in the end, the Saudis are going to have to walk away with a very bloody nose and in inverted commas. And the US needs to get to walk away and not have be seen to have anything to do with this. But this constant desire to back them financially and militarily is for me is is disastrous and it's and it's not something i really feel that um that trump himself really wants to be seen to be doing but again it comes back to this point that his foreign policy is utterly hijacked by neocons and this is causing a you know a major problem in terms of addressing his concerns to walk out of syria you know, de-escalate U.S. tension that they're causing across the world, shut bases and stop having these enormous financial undertaking to, for wars that is of no benefit to the U.S. in any way, shape or form. But, I mean, there doesn't seem to be any likelihood at the moment of that decreasing. And I would strongly suspect that, um, it, you know, post the, the midterms, we may start to see some changes, but at the moment... You know, votes like this will happen, and this has a lasting implication because it means the financing and the support is going to carry on past the midterms. So this is the problem. We can have this lull period where Trump's focused on the midterms and various things will be pushed through, which have lasting consequences for nations such as Yemen. Yeah, the deep the deep states get getting desperate. You know, you know, yesterday John Bolton, you know, openly uh, threatened Syria, saying that, you know, you use chemical weapons, the U.S. is going to act aggressively. <laughs> they're, they're getting so desperate. It, 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 and I hate to laugh about it because, you know, this is this what it leads to. But, Paul, also, you know, Turkey. Turkey is, again, I think there's a couple of hot spots where I think the, the deep state is trying to create some type of event, some types of, of, of panic. Uh, but I think with uh, Turkey's recent actions – I think you can pretty much go ahead and say that they are oh, no longer a NATO member with bringing in the Russian-made uh, S-400 uh, missile system. What do you think about that, Paul? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, Turkey really de facto ceased to be a member of NATO the minute we had the failed coup and, and the Kremlin got on the phone to Erdogan and said, you know, there's a coup attempt <clears throat> to remove you out of power. <clears throat> Excuse me. And by the way, it's Western-backed. Effectively, it's the U.S. I mean, at that moment, NATO was dead and buried. But of course, like we always say, it doesn't happen overnight. It takes a long period of time um, where, you know, there was distrust between the Russians and the Chinese with Erdogan and, you know, vice versa because of the Western influence. So those relationships take time to, to come to pass. But certainly, yes, you know, 
there's been a lot of talk and the US was threatening to, to sanction Turkey over buying the S 400s and and then threatening to prevent them taking delivery of the F thirty fives. I think they'd be doing Turkey a huge favor if they did that, but but that's beside the point. So yeah, the idea that, you know, obviously now there's been statements coming out of Moscow that, you know, they'll be implementing the contract for the supply of the S four hundreds to Turkey in twenty nineteen. I wouldn't be surprised if it happened sooner than that. But, of course, Washington's reaction is, hang on, a NATO member is buying Russian S-400 technology. Well, that's going to pose this serious security risk for U.S.-made weapons used by Turkey, including, ironically, of course, the F-35, of all things. So, And I think this is just indicative that we've recently seen the attack on the Lira, which was certainly... Western backed. There was a desire to try and cripple the lira. I think it was in the process they thought they they crashed the lira and destroy the the Turkish economy. They can get rid of Erdogan in the process. And of course, what's what's Russia doing? They're going. Well, Turkey's given us indications they're not going to need to trade in the dollar anymore. That's fine. You know, pay for your S four hundreds in lira or will in rubles instead of using dollars. <laughs> So it's like this this multiple whammy effect that's uh, uh, to come about. But certainly there's been definitely between Erdogan and Putin a desire to expedite the delivery of these missile systems. And frankly, the reality is the S-400s blow the socks off um, Thad and Aegis and everything else. And, and also, you know, if we think the S-400s are, are an incredibly good missile defense system, the S-500 knocks spots off the S-400, and the S-500 is fully working now, and is and the Russians have been using it. They haven't sold it to anyone at this point, but but it, it's workable, and it does knock the socks off um, off the S-400. But yeah, it's it's just another indication of a nation um, who is is rotating east away from being a cabal state, and it was absolutely a critical cabal state simply because it, you know, of its geographical location. That's why they wanted Turkey in NATO, not because they care about Turkey, but because they, they want to use Turkey as, and that's why they had the Incirlik air base, which they wanted to use, you know, to launch preemptive strikes in the Middle East. And um, Incirlik is rapidly becoming a complete white elephant for the for US in the process. And some other nasty, ugly stuff goes on in, in Surlick, which will obviously stop in the process as well. But yeah, it's it's just indicative that, you know, if you think about it, Turkey gets threatened. So what does it do? It we get within days it's saying we're de-dollarizing. Oh, by the way, we we have an official announcement we're taking delivery of the S four hundred. This is how nations are reacting now. In the past, they would have capitulated, gone groveling to Washington and begging them for mercy and please, you know, don't do anything nasty and horrible to us. And now they're going, those days have gone. We're not going to tolerate it anymore. If you're going to try and wreck our economy, then in the process, we'll, we'll just accelerate de-dollarization. We'll accelerate leaving NATO, even though, you know, apart from in name, they have left, but... We're going to take delivery of Russian missile defense systems. We're going to cooperate with Russia in Syria. And by the way, America, we're not even telling you what the Russians are discussing with us in, in, in with regards to Syria now, even though notionally we're supposed to be allies working 
under the auspices of NATO. So, yeah, it's extremely a damning indictment of how nations like Turkey have rotated east. And, and it comes back to the point when we had the failed coup at the time. I said, this is the beginning and the end of NATO. It's, it'll accelerate the rotation of Turkey east and it will have huge ramifications for the Middle East and also for the war in Syria. And, and that's exactly where we are now. And part of the reason why not so much that Assad has all but won the war in Syria. I mean, it's largely due to Russian intervention, but also because Turkey is now on side and is doing the things it should be doing. Whereas, as we know, when they first entered the war in Syria, they were all for overthrowing Assad. I mean, that shows that the huge 180 shift in the Turkish mentality to, to dealing with matters in the Middle East and also, obviously, how they work with the Russians and the Chinese, and particularly with China as well. There's huge economic reasons for them to become a very vibrant member of the Belt and Road Initiative, simply because they're the gateway between East and West, effectively. And, and, and that, more than anything, puts them in a great position. And that's why the Turkstream pipeline is now back online and is, is, you know, in due course, will become live and operational. Paul, absolutely. Thank you so much, Paul. Please uh, uh, share with our listeners uh, how they can learn more about your work. And I want to thank you once again for, for uh, joining today, Paul. Well, it's an absolute pleasure. I'm glad we can do it. So, <clears throat> oh, excuse me, always a pleasure to do it. Um, yeah, the website's the seriousreport.com, S-I-R-I-U-S. We've obviously <clears throat> lots of free material. Um, we've got the, the Twitter account, which we use, and obviously the subscription-based uh, content, which is five podcasts equivalent a week. It's probably roughly 100 minutes of very intense information that we don't discuss anywhere else. And we put all the analysis together where you get a lot more detail and background and an understanding of things. I mean, we talk things on here, but sometimes, you know, we're talking about things now that we told podcast subscribers many months ago. But there's opportunities now to start to discuss this because if people pay for a service, then, you know, they, they obviously get preferential treatment towards the information we give them. But, you know, we, we thoroughly enjoy doing it and, you know, we're very grateful to everyone who's subscribed and, uh, and obviously we're very grateful to rogue news because, you know, we've done, we've been, you know, since January, 2017 and, uh, you gave us a lot of exposure and, uh, we're always very grateful for that. And it's a pleasure when we can, you know, in some small way, return the favor and, and fill in for V when he's on holiday. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Paul, thank you so much once again for our, our listeners. Please like, share, subscribe. Make sure you go to roguenews.com. Uh, make sure you enter your, your, your email there. So that way you can always be alert when we do release articles and, and videos. Uh, today's a big day at Rogue. Uh, we will be back at 1230 p.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, with Harley Schlinger for Harley Hanging with Harley. And then at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, uh, Gus will be joining us for Cuss with Gus. So, Paul, if you still feel that, feel that urge again to... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to vent some spleen. <laughs> uh, you're welcome to join us at 4 o'clock. It's okay. at that time. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone take care. This is CJ and London, Paul, and we're over and out.